From a whisper to a roar, our voice has grown in strength and volume. Echoes from our past guide our future as we explore the woman's voice. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I am already excited and motivated and inspired with this lady here with us this morning. This lady, I call her my sister. She is my confidant, my friend, and she is one special human being. Please welcome, big round of applause at home for Donna Dyson. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning and good morning, listeners. It's just a joy to be here this morning. Oh, thank you for joining us, darling. And uh, we've already had a little banter and solved the world's problems as we do in 30 seconds. So I'm really keen to get started and share with our listeners your amazing outlook on the world and what you're doing to change and leave your legacy here in this world. But let's start with the first question on how has your voice led you here today? My voice uh, from from a child is somewhat different to the voice that I have now. I grew up in a in a world where I was always valued and heard and loved, um, but I had some amazing influences um, which really guided my voice and where we speak into people's lives problems, situations, world issues. And when we back off and say, you know, not my monkey, not my circus kind of stuff. So I've had some very good guides and um, it led me to understanding at quite a young age that I would be somebody who would be nurturing and intuitive. And um, I really invested my entire profession the first way round. And we'll talk about my two waves of professions um, mm-hmm. to education. And I knew that I wanted to be a teacher pretty young. Um, I used to line up my teddy bears and dolls and tell them all, you know, <laughs> learn their homework and things <laughs> like kids do when they're playing. Though that was certainly an indicator. I'll speak about those kinds of signs in kids a bit later on. But, um, yeah, it was certainly a a place that led me to my voice now. And then my incredible experience and profession of education has certainly prepared me for how I live my second wave of my life now, which uh, focuses on music. Mm. So I know what your second wave is, but so that the listeners can understand, can you give us a a little snapshot of where you started and how it's led you here today? Sure. So um, I always wanted to teach and um, I taught. I had the great honour to be a teacher and um, I'm trained from what we don't to um, postgrads, um, so postgrad university students. So that includes a lot of age groups and year levels and subjects. And um, I was really privileged to really focus my attention on six, seven, eight-year-olds, seven-year-olds in particular, are my great uh, academic interest um, in their, just in their psychological stage of development, but also um, they haven't learnt that they can't do anything yet. It's not in their development phase. So they believe they can do everything and it, they are at their most raw and exposed form to work out what they will be when they're older. So I'll just plant that seed there because we'll come back to those uh, kind of conversations. And then um, at a certain age, which was rather young, I was put into um, administration uh, 
in schools, which means leading schools. And then from there, I went and did some research, um, a research project. Um, University of Queensland and I was asked to stay on and lecture. And um, that's that became a big part of my life then. Um, I was seconded and took other roles post my university lecturing days as academic dean and all these different kinds of education roles, education consultant. I worked for the Queensland Museum in an education consultancy role. And uh, I'm also a prolifically published author um, in children's literacy and literature. So that's um, my academic space. And then on the 12th of January, 2012, um, my world went black and I had been struck with a stroke, um, which took my eyesight. So I'm actually legally blind. And then it was a struggle back. I had to learn everything uh, from walking to everything. <laughs> I had to make a cup of tea blind. Um, and so the first year was really difficult. I had to really kind of learn all of that. And I'm legally blind. And then after three months, I had this tiny, tiny wedge of sight that reappeared to give me what I call my survival sight, which I'm really grateful for, though I am still deemed as legally blind. And then I won a federal fellowship. Uh, the following year, I was put forward for a federal fellowship and I was one of a bunch of people that were selected. Um, and we were able to sort of pivot, use the federal fellowship to pivot our career um, into something else. So um, to become more of uh, who we were, um, regardless of the circumstances that had happened. So there were people that were returned soldiers with um, mine explosions and things. They had amazing skill sets to divert to new skills. There were people from sporting institutes that had had diving accidents or football accidents or whatever, and um, each with their sorry tale but with an incredible ability to step forward and do great things. So I felt really privileged to be in that, and I didn't use that um, federal fellowship for eight months because I would studied, obviously, um, pretty intensely to be where I was, and I didn't want the money wasted on um, or study or something for myself when somebody who had not studied um, perhaps was, you know, could have used that money to help them. And so I thought I'd kind of just work it out myself and it was all very kind of them to offer me this, <laughs> this little fellowship, but I didn't want to waste their money or their time. And um, I just thought there were people that were much more needy than what I would be. And so the organisers came over from, they flew over from Perth and they took me out to lunch and said, you can't return the money. You've got to use it. <laughs> so um, we're here to sort that out with you. And there must be one thing, just one thing that you would like to go forward with and we will help you uh, think about that further. And I just said, oh, there's always one thing. I have been creative my whole world since I was a little child. Um, my whole world has been one of creating and, and one of creation you know, incredibly immersed in arts and the love of music. And I'd really appreciate um, perhaps exploring music a little more and uh, maybe songwriting. And so they, um, yeah, set me up with mentorships and I started learning um, a little more um, intently about it. And then from there, um I started co-writing and then, so that was 2013, 2014. Around that time, I became the Australian ambassador for 
um, Vision Australia. And so that's always um, a gift to be able to speak about the blind community and to enhance the awareness um, for different campaigns. And then um, by that stage, I was co-writing and starting to win awards. And then by 2016, I became the Australian Songwriter of the Year with APRA ASA. And uh, my good friend Damien um, Leith and I are co-writers and um, a very important song uh, was surrounding that particular award called Spirit of Australia, which I'm really uh, proud of that song. And then after that, um, I held on to obviously the title for a year and then upon handing the relay baton back uh, to the next person who would be honoured with that award, um, I was then signed to MGM for um, my first label, which was a children's label, and uh, I, I requested that it would be a children's label because of my passion for education. And then since then I've had two more labels signed and it's also with ABC as well. So I suppose I've been a professional educator and now I'm a professional composer songwriter. So that's the short, that's the short phrasing, but the long phrasing we've received. As well. <laughs> There's so many rabbit holes that I could go down in, in such an extraordinary journey but I want to circle back to January 12th, 2012, which was, you know, a moment in time when life changed for you. What was the driving force in you that helped you push forward with that and helped you keep going? I think that I had always... um, I am very resilient. Now, there's a little bit of this story that I have kind of missed out on. I've really suffered with a lung condition since I was 23, like really suffered. Uh, some people pick up a cold and I that cold, if I had caught it, would take me to ICU fighting for my life. So a few times, quite a few times, in fact, <laughs> pretty much every winter. And so uh, I learned to fight and I learned to hold on to... Um, to what I wanted. And I became sick through, for example, my university years with education. And um, I would go to the hospital in the morning and I would have a drip and then put through, fed through and the cannula would be taped to my arm and I'd go to uni and then I would come back to the hospital and have another bag of whatever I needed. And um, that's how I persisted through. And I know on the day when my graduation was at university, my friends were having a chicken and champagne set of celebration brunch and breakfast. And I was uh, in hospital still really, really, really sick, coughing up blood. I can remember that day. And yet I still believed that there were summer holidays and I had six weeks to recover to get back and I would then be in my first classroom. And I was, the brain has this incredible, uh, space, you know, a few cupboards, a few shelves that we can kind of retreat to. Um, sort of like when the visitors come to your house and you need to go to that cupboard and get the spare blankets and stuff out. Um, there is a reserve in our in our mind if we are aware of it and if we tap into it that we can go to and just place our world into a new space of this is what, you know, what is happening is what is happening. And this is this moment. It's not going to, pain only lasts, you know, for a short moment at a time. It's not on and on and on. Everybody has a moment where they're actually not in pain. I share that because um, 
10 months after I went blind, they found an inoperable brain tumour. So I suffer with uh, significant pain at times um, and have um, throughout my life. I I just believe, though, that we can't return to that space in the pain. So um, you might have a headache, it lasts for two hours, and then you get a break. Well, if you get pain in another two hours, that's a new thing. It's not all day. It, you had two hours of freedom from that pain. Um, or you have these moments of joy. It's not always. It's not always happening to you and you must contain you know the language around it you must contain the thinking around it and you must live through it because it's not forever everything even when like I've had a uh, I've just celebrated 30 something years with Prince Charles Hospital uh, Research Foundation um with my lung. And even though I can say, oh, well, you know, my lung's been a bit crook for 30 years. The reality is that's not true. I've had seasons when I'm ridiculously well and happy as could be and, and creating. And that's how I dealt with the day that I went blind. So, so can I just interrupt there? It, you know, it feels like that is when people play the victim and they connect to the story. And um, I think what you've just shared with us is so invaluable but i want you to i want you to go back to what are you holding on to where is this precious secret space that you're talking to the talking about that we can go to how do you, how does everyone get to that space i think we all have it it's a choice to it's a choice to think that way um i i've had a uh, interview where the little tagline is constantly repeated. Uh, people grab that tagline and use it as intros when I'm on radio and whatnot. And it's, um, you know, I, I wake up and I choose the happy. I wake up every morning and I choose the happy. I wake up every morning and I choose to be ridiculously in love with my husband. That is a choice every day. We mm. all, my, my husband is perfect in my eyes, um, but he is a human and he is a darling and we have had 18 beautiful years of marriage together, but no one is perfect. And there are days in everyone's life where you don't think they're perfect. But if you wake up and believe the best, for that person, want the best for that person, want to be able to serve that person with the best role and the best wife that I can be, um, best friend that I can be, um, the soft place to fall when challenges come, all of those things. That, that All of those things are choices. You know, every, everything that we uh, choose to bring to our life, we have premeditated and decided what we're going to do, you know, that the thing of put your brain in gear before your mouth takes action. Your brain is usually in gear. I, I'm researched enough to know that. <laughs> so, you know, I don't take any, you know, comments of, oh, well, that was left to field. Sometimes there might be a, a moment where we're distracted, but on a whole, you you choose to go to places, you choose to speak lines that you speak. And we have a choice to speak positively into people's lives and about our own life, or we can sit there with the pity party. I have a joke about a pity party, Lise, and that is um, a pity party should only last for the length of time to have a coffee and something you know, like a mm. short or something, right? <laughs> like no more. Any more yeah. is an indulgence. And, yeah, and sit in it and revel in it. I do, you know, I give myself that time. I go, right, you're going to revel in it like a little piggy 
and yeah. you're going to have fun in it and you're going to kick and scream and carry on and then you're going yeah, to get up. You've got to get it out. Otherwise, yeah. it will, you know, it will burden you. You know, you've got to have your little, you've got to have your little hissy fit occasionally. Um, but that's a space to expel frustration or disappointment or anger or, um, you know. And it's just an explosion of energy, you know, when you've got that frustration. I heard the great um, uh, Eckhart Tolle say once, you know, if you sit and watch ducks on the water, every now and again there'll be a little flurry. They'll just kind of flap their wings and scurry around and then they'll relax back down into the water. And he said, and it's just a release of energy. And he said, and if I think we, if if human beings could understand that that is just a release and be okay with that and allow ourselves to do that. It would be, we'd be far greater um, in our mindset anyway. Yeah. And I'm very much um, somebody who believes, I believe in multiple intelligences and I believe, well, I don't just believe in it. I have taught through that methodology and continue to regardless of contemporary um, new trends in education that will come up. That is, it is a truth of the human human being we have gifts and talents that we would just say gifts and talents but ultimately they're actually multiple intelligences and when when we choose to understand what our strengths and weaknesses are within those multiple intelligences then we are in a space of more command and knowing our strengths and knowing our weaknesses and knowing who we need to surround ourselves with I can't I cannot surround myself with pity party people because I don't I have a mentality of, um, you know, this too will end and it will be, I will be, I will be this always stronger. I, mm. I'm going through this for a purpose. It may not be for me. It may be to teach me something like empathy because I'm going to meet somebody in another two years and I've got to remember this moment because I'll be able to deal with them. Yeah. Everything is a lesson. It, nothing is a waste um, the way that I look at sort mm. of, experiences and life and events and it is a privilege um I've said this before and some people kind of think this is a little hard to swallow but um you know I think that um I I have a strong faith and I, I believe God doesn't give us anything that we can't really deal with and um or he's going to teach us something through it. Or, or. So so you have a a faith that you hold on to what what, are, what is your faith? I, I align my belief system through the Christian faith. I believe that, um, you know, I'm, I'm well enough read to experience um, and, and, of course, love and accept um, people who have other journeys and other experiences. Um, my, my settlement um, in my heart is that I just, I've been, unwell in my life so many times and I know there's something more I really believe there's something more I have felt it I've been so sick and I've never felt alone I've never felt mm-hmm. that the fear was so overwhelming that I couldn't actually uh, sustain or control where my mind would be I, it was I've always felt um, I've always felt supported I've always felt encouraged I've always felt you know carried in my deepest pains and I've always felt loved. And I believe that that is, um, that it's coming from somewhere that is not pure human love or human experience. It's my life is completely and utterly testament to, Mm. to the world of, um, 
this gracious being that just keeps giving me opportunities, that keeps putting me back on my feet, to, that keeps um, helping me with this incredible ability to endure and sustain until, you know, you get a break, a bit of a reprieve. Um, and, I, and I say that least because, you know, the brain tumour stuff, it's that pain is pretty unbearable at times, but yeah. it's okay. And I have an oncologist who I dearly love because he said to me, um, you know, pain is just an acronym and it stands for um, uh, sorry, I'm just going to get you to cut there for me. Just I have a oncologist who simply says that um, the word hope is an acronym and it stands for hold on pain ends. And I actually hold on to that saying, hold on, pain ends. And the disappointment that you might experience with another person, hold on, that pain will end. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a really bad car accident two years ago, you know, hold on, pain ends. And um, the experience around what on the earth will I do, I've lost my entire career and my my very being was wrapped up in my career. As an educator, I knew who I was. I was very confident and I had a very strong voice in that field, um, a very influential voice into my um, university students and I could speak encouragement through their lives and to their students and I was really blessed in that space. But that vanished in the minute that I lost my sight. However, hold on, pain ends because my eyes stopped working, but my ears were always working. And if anything, the volume of them was turned and a little, a little louder, a little more amplified, and I could pick up and hear things Mm. uh, that I wasn't aware of before. It is a privilege to be blind. I am in a space where I really have learned a lot of lessons. And one of them is um, we judge people by the way, perhaps their dress, their hairstyle, their shoes, their car, their career, their house, their whatever. Um, That's not what happens when you're blind. You can't see any of that. (laughs) So you judge people by the tone of their voice and their heart. Yeah. Yeah. So that is a complete game changer and what a lesson in life that is because it's not about stuff. It's not about um, fashion or class or, you know, suburbs or, you know, mm-hmm. experience or the capital the culture that you use this thing. It's yeah. you you only hear their heart, you hear their agenda, and you hear their tone, and you can pick up a million inferences if you have intuition. Um, so do that. So let's go down that path because I I I believe that we can all hear people's heart. We can all hear the intention. And I think certainly as children, we do that intuitively and then there's a part in our cognitive development where we start disassociating or disconnecting from that innate ability that we're born with what happens yep I'd love to speak to that because that's something that I'm very passionate about okay so around eight and a half nine children discover the comparative aspect of their life 
We're all the same. We're all friends. We go to the playground. They're my best friend. I met them two seconds ago. We're on the swings together. They're my best friend. Come and meet my mom. They're my best friend. Yeah. There's all that. At nine, it's like, oh, they can do a cartwheel and I can't. So they must be better than me. Or there's the swimming carnival and they swum and they got a medal or a ribbon. I didn't do that. They're better than me. So we have this comparative thing that happens and um, it stays with us forever. Um, we, we have to work out and that's where teaching is so important um, and parents to be in tune with this stuff, but lots of them, you know, kids don't come with a handbook. So the reality is that we need to be really honing in on a child's multiple intelligences around seven, building and building and building them up to understand that the thing that they are shining lights in is their special um, multiple intelligence. Can, and- can I ask you in, in talking about that, what's your belief around saying no to children at that age? Mm. Is it always yes or it can we Oh, say no, 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 no. There's lots of, there's lots of no's. Yeah. No, <laughs> I 100% agree with you. Yeah, because there's, there's issues around, um, there are issues around boundaries and safety and. And knowing when to say no. It's okay yes, to say no. Frontal lobes aren't growing. In fact, kids, um, kids' frontal lobes aren't growing until girls, you know, sort of early 20s and boys mid to late 20s. Sometimes we're discovering up to 32 for boys. So, um, you know, the frontal lobe is uh, the consequential behaviour and we have to make sure that people are safe under our care um, or tuition. And so there's a lot of no and uh, there's a lot of no about the way we speak to somebody. Children will learn how to speak to somebody and that is a complete and utter repeat like a parrot of how they've been spoken to. Mm. And when parents say, I don't such and such know where they got that from, insert adjectives mm. and such and such, then mm, mm. everybody around them goes, well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of, yeah, you can, you can play games, but the truth is um, the truth is they're, they're little shadows, they're little... Um, Absolutely, the little they're little, they're little parts. Yeah. Have you ever? Can sorry. I ask? Have you ever been afraid to speak your truth? Yeah, um, there have been times. I am uh, of an age where the women now, young women now, are certainly stepping up into very significant leaderships positions and um, have a kind of spunk about them uh, that they will just speak their mind, and that's that. Um, and I'm really proud to witness that in our lifetime. Um, I have had some beautiful mentoring by people like Quentin Bryce, who really fought very, very hard for women our age to be able to have the positions that we've had. Mm. Um, However, we have sat at the board tables still with uh, folk of her generation, perhaps, that don't see that didn't see that change coming in women and have uh, certainly blocked and made it difficult. Um, there are times that one would would just say that one has to have um, a trump card in their CV to get a job over, a, you know, a, a, dare I say, a you know, boys club, you know, applicant. Um, but it's true. I've I've. Mm-hmm really had to fight through my career um, for situations like that. And, you know, at the beginning of my career in education, it's fair to say that 90% of the um, heads of schools and colleges were guys and 90% of the staff 
of teachers were female, um, that certainly had a big spin in my lifetime and I'm really excited uh, mm-hmm. to see that. I think women in leadership and education really are, you know, it's a beneficial thing. We have certain uh, emotional intelligences that really align with that field. That's just some speaking of education there alone. Um, however, there's been times when I've been the only female in a boardroom and that hasn't been exactly comfortable. I've sat down to give a really important report as a guest um, to different um, you know, situations and been asked that uh, by the person next to me that they'll have, you know, white with two thanks, love, um, as I've oh. said, on. And, you know, that's a really tricky conversation. And, um, you know, there's a part of me that has a serving heart and is gracious. Um, there's another part of me that says I've worked my butt off to sit at this desk and I'm not going to make you a cup of tea when you have two legs and you can get it and I'm the first speaker and you've got time to go and get your cup of tea. It's not being rude, um, but it's, you know, it is, it's it's this inference that my age um of peers uh, would have experienced perhaps at one time or other, I certainly did. And and in saying that, um, in the last sort of 15 years, I'm really excited to say it's it's kind of evaporated or going or gone. And I'm really kind of excited about that. Can, for I, can yeah. I just talk on a deeper level there? Because you know that I've got a 19-year-old daughter and, and yes. just hearing you say there that, you know, the young women of today are certainly a lot more spunky and they're, they're more, much more likely to step up and say, you know, what they want, what they don't want or no, use the word no. But there is a lot that still aren't saying mm. that and we we know the domestic violence figures we know sure. that girls are getting into um abusive relationships and i just find in the conversations that i have with my own daughter that even though she's been brought up by a really strong mother and i've been a a leader and and um a, an example of what a woman can do i still find in her natural mindset that there is a Prince Charming that's going to come along and he's going to sweep her off her feet and she's going to be looked after forevermore. Now, she wouldn't articulate that, but, you know, in some of the conversations we've had, and I've just, I just would like to get your interpretation on how do we change what for me seems to be a DNA thing. It's it's ingrained in us as women. Yeah, because we still we still read Cinderella and Frozen and, you know, and we present these stories to children, um, you know, Queen's and Ballet, who I dearly love and mentor some dancers um, in my own personal journey with them. But, look, you know, they're doing Sleeping Beauty this next month. I mean, yeah. the, the, the stories of fables are still out there from a time when a woman didn't earn um an income was a burden on their family to be married off so that they, you know, there's all of that still in our heritage and um, and I suppose conversation as children, they're, they're being fed that through storybooks. Look, it's a very much an old traditional story, of course. The leaders that I spoke about before, about women, I'm talking about young young leaders stepping up for starters. So they already have identified themselves as leaders and they've certainly stepped up with Gutso and SAS. Mm, yes. And sure. I would like to think um, the word humility and empathy comes in there as well, but that comes with a bit of age. Mm. Um, 
But I would like to think that it comes with a bit of class as well. To be humble is a, um, there's times when you have to just listen and then think and then open your mouth rather than thinking you're the brightest spark at the table, if that makes sense. I just think it's really important that young women do remember to be presenting as gracious, intelligent, smart women we need to be reminding young women in leadership and as they are progressing through their different stages that we do have um, new seasons where we can speak up and speak into people's lives and we can be leaders and we can take roles and responsibilities. But with a responsibility also has to come a humility because we still have lots to learn. And, um, you know, it's important to be gracious and to really pace what you're going to say with intelligence and thought and uh, consideration. Um, I would really like to think that today's young women still do think they need a little bit of that because it's fine to have spunk and sass, but to step up with an entitled attitude is something of danger. Yeah. There's a difference between saying something that's going to make an impact and add value and saying something just because you want to be right. Yes, exactly. And sometimes you don't have to be right, but you do have to be gracious. People will remember how you made them feel, not whether Absolutely. you're right or not. And that's how they will go away. Yeah, the intention behind the sound, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Has your voice ever saved your life, either literally or metaphorically? Mm. Yeah, I think I'm going to say that it has. Um, when I was uh, in my early weeks of blindness, there was a safety issue in walking. Um, the first three days of being blind, I fell down the front steps and I broke um, three ribs and the tailbone. So um, I had to kind of be a little more uh, stable for a few weeks there. And um, so I just kind of sat down at my piano and worked um, the keys there and found just refound my voice, I suppose, my singing voice. And I'd always sung and it always, um, when I was a teacher, I literally would be known as the teacher that had this strap across my um, outfit every day and the guitar swung around the back <laughs> um, because there was always an opportunity to sing um, and make up on the spot a um, different neuropathway method for one or two children to learn by if it was mm. rhythmed with music. And I knew that from a neuro kind of perspective of learning. So I wanted to always make sure that those experiences were available for those children. Um, I'd always been musical. I hadn't had time to really explore that. And so, um, yeah, that was. Do you think, do you think that you're, experience and when you compose you sit down and write and I know that you write a couple of songs pretty much every day don't you um, <laughs> that you're actually channeling all of your experiences your intuition into those songs for the children to take that message away and that's oh yeah absolutely um look my there's three labels and um, the spotty kites label um look there's some quirky and fun stuff on that but look ultimately it's me being a teacher and it's the only way that i i wanted a pathway back to education i wanted a pathway back to being able to be a voice in children's ears and to remind them of their childhood i wanted to be a custodian of childhood mm -hmm. um 
to be able to give them joy. I remember when I was in grade seven and uh, the boys were a bit sort of, you know, cheeky boys in grade seven. And there was the ABC Sing, Sing, Sing program that used to come on the radio. And I'm really sort of telling my age here. But anyway. The <laughs> I remember. The point is, <laughs> I was there. There was the Purple People Eater, yes. on, uh, you know, page 48 or whatever it was on the 16th of that year. And when the Purple People Eater came on, the kids came alive. All of the kids came alive. I remember how it felt. Now, I probably can't remember exactly how it sounded. I remember it being loud and everyone sang. Then the boys and this broke into it and they all had their air guitars and they're all very, very excited about the Purple People Eater. Purple People Eater is the reason Spotty Kites exists. I want you know to I still read. have the Sing, Sing, Sing book. Uh, I do too, Lise. Do you? There's another yeah. thing. Oh, my God, serendipity. Absolutely. <laughs> I've got quite a few of them. and, and We're the only is, two in the history of the world yeah, that still have them. <laughs> There's a few music teachers that probably involved, held on to them as well. But um, look, it, it, it was a, it was a um, pivotal thing for me because I wanted to bring joy and mm. sensibility in language through music. So there are children who struggle with reading, but if they sing to a rhythm or a pattern and then read to a rhythm and pattern, rhyming couplets and uh, books with um, beautiful rhyme and rhythm, anything by Mim Fox or lots of lots of artists, um, uh, sorry, lots of uh, literary artists that are incredible in this space. And that kind of beauty of language then uh, just twiggers another, it just, you know, just sparks another part of the brain. So it's a hearing joy. You, I wanted to bring joy to the kids as well. Hearing you talk about the neuropathways there, do you have a process to get yourself into the right space? Because I, I know a composer um, that I was fortunate enough to be around and he would play Bach on the piano because he liked the mathematical structure that would set his brain up ready for him to go to work with his composition. Right. Is there anything that you do? Spotty to- Kites, I truly, um, I listen to the most fun, quirky songs that I can just to bring the joy, just to make sure I am in the sense I'm in a child-like state. I know what it's like to be seven, yeah? I remember seven very well. So is there is there some little is there some little Donna that comes out in these compositions? Oh, look, there's all, all of them. Bunny Ballet, which was just our most enormous hit through Easter. Um, it went sort of, it had a, it had a really great life internationally. Um, it is the exact choreography of when I was five with my ballet costume. I remember the exact choreography. I don't play Bach, but I do play some children's music occasionally on the way to the studio when I'm going to record or uh, compose. I mostly compose in my home and, um, look, I'm very fast. That's another little element of this as well. I'm very fast because I'm very experienced in knowing children, in understanding literacy and literature and how words work because that's my academic specialty. And also um, I'm just a very fast writer, whether I was writing a book or a poem or a uh, song or even a letter to someone, I'm just a very fast writer. So um, that's why Spotty Kites is quite prolific, I suppose. That's why there's so many songs around. In regards to um, the music of what I prepare for, there's just always the seven or eight-year-old daughter 
in those songs. And I just bring the child um, to the forefront of my memories of what I loved. And, um, and in fact, I'm just doing an album at the moment um, that I'm working on. I've just put a couple of covers there because I had a couple of 45 records when I was a kid and played them over and over and over. And I wanted the children to experience some of the songs of the past that I grew up with and thought were just, you know, magical in my childhood and uh, really explored this imagination um, because when we're hearing a song, we're not seeing visuals and we are encountering the uh, opportunity and the invitation to open the imagination and to see the illustrations and the visuals in our mind. And that is something that children are, you know, really at a deficit for at the moment because the screens provide the visual. And so if you take that visual away, um, sometimes I don't, I don't want to do film clips for the kids for YouTubes for all of it. I, mm. I want them to mm. listen, listen and to create and uh, imagine in their own little their own little minds. You you mentioned you bring little Donna and, and certainly uh, little Lisa. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit woo-woo here. But little Lisa uh, is very much a part of my world and I let her lead in a lot of my decision-making. I just wanted to tap in with what you thought about, you know, adults today allowing those childlike desires and that childlike joie de vivre and the joy to come through in their life. I, I, people struggle with it and the people that I work with, the adults that I work with, a lot of my uh, training is to go back to that and get back into contact with their creative little yeah. self. Yeah. We must play. That? We must play. Mm. And we I don't play you- enough. We don't. I've been a oh, child, um, early childhood advocate for children to be playing as long as they possibly can. Let's not sit them down at desks at the age of four and five when they should be, in fact, playing and discovering and make-believing. And that is the most, you know, gorgeous, joyous time of their lives. In Finland, as we know, the children don't go to school until after seven. So, you know, we are depriving our children already of up to three years of formal education, making them sit in chairs and structured learning. Yeah. The first, um, the first thing that I say to an adult who's struggling with a very monotone drawl in their presentation is when was the last time you went and had fun? Yeah. And it's deer in a, deer in a headlight because it, they say, well, I, I actually can't tell you. I said, well, your voice replicates that. Your voice is going to carry the weight of that burden every single day. Go and do something that's fun, that's adventurous, and listen to your voice change. Watch the interactions around you. Yes, absolutely. You know, also just give them some Dr. Seuss to read out loud because it's, you know, it's nonsensical and it's really playful language and, uh, and it's crazy. It's so, it's so crazy that of course it works. And that's why Dr. Seuss is Dr. Seuss, (laughs) but, um, you know, there's joy in it. It's full of joy. And even, even singing and, and, and talking to our animals. I know that we both have little puppies. I sing. Yes. And talk and dance yes. stupid language to that puppy all day because it yes. keeps me keeps me grounded, keeps me present. Keeps you happy. Yeah. Keeps me happy. Keeps little Lisa happy. It releases all of the happy, um, you know, joy beans in the head. I also just want to flag to you that um, I think, as you know, I have I speak to my my animals so much that I end up writing about them and, and yes. as a <laughs> the dog, which is They're actually very present. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
like you know her whole world is is metamorphed into this whole world of music and and uh, literacy now but look it's it's true it's finding the joy and knowing the joy and knowing your joy points we have I've spoken about you know the hold on pain ends and um, even through those times of great pain um, just taking your favorite beverage preferably non-alcoholic and wow. going and just sitting in a garden and um, or going for a walk to a park mm-hmm. and get out and it's got Absolutely. nothing nature time but it's got a lot to do with the nature yeah mm-hmm. it's all about just a different view a different um, breathe in breathe in feel it feel the air on your skin just you're not at home in the shadows and the uh, dappled light of your windows and your and your you know walls you're outside in the warmth and you will hear new things your brain will just be you know it's like sprinkling a hose on um, dehydrated you know flowers in a garden you actually have to perk up a bit because you all your senses become more in tune we really need to be also feeding our heads with what we want to come out of our mouths I have a rule, Lisa, I don't know if I've shared this rule with you ever, um, but there's no sharks and no divas in my world. They have to be sincere and they have to be, um, you know, not out for something intentionally for themselves and with that, without a heart to give to others. My world is about nurturing. It's about giving. It's about creating. Um, my world has never been my own. As a teacher, it is the most selfless profession, I think, that there is. Um, nurses, nurses are amazing. Doctors, you know, there's many people that sacrifice incredibly um, for the benefit of others. There are researchers out there who would, you know, spend their life, last loaf of bread trying to find a cure for something that they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. And these are the kind of thoughts um, when we consume ourselves about how we can do something better for someone else, we stop thinking about ourselves, and therefore all of the woes of the world about us evaporate because we're mm. thinking consciously about the betterment of somebody else. And mm. my world has been, that's been modeled to me. My grandparents were phenomenal. Um, I lived in a small town and my, my grandparents um, were, the, were the founders of the first Meals on Wheels in that town and the first nursing home in that town. They fundraised through Rotary and all these. And then my father was a phenomenal um, giver to the community, builder of people. And they those things were modeled to me. It, my life was not about me. I was destined to find something in my skill set, in my multiple intelligences, to be able to serve others. I suppose it comes back to my faith journey, but but it's a little broader than that in that I believe that we are all given incredible gifts and talents. And those gifts and talents for me, educatively and professionally, I look at as multiple intelligences. And spiritually, I can look at them as gifts and talents that we've been mm-hmm. given. But we're given them for a reason, Lisa. I am different to you. You're different to someone else because we are hands and feet in a community. If we all were left-handed and we could only ever all do one thing, you know, we all know that, right? So we all have gifts and talents for different reasons to make a complementary society. And with those gifts and talents, we are to find our place in the world of how our gifts and talents are meant to be able to contribute to that community and to serve others. And that is how we find 
our calling in life. That is how we find what we are meant to do. And we stop worrying about what other people are saying about us when we're focused on helping other people, yes. aren't we? So when you in your heart know intentionally exactly what you are supposed to be doing, then you really, you don't care. You're just trying to bring them in to come and help as well. Like it's, you know, we can't be self-conscious about these things when we know for sure, you know, Oprah says about, you know, you know what you know. When you know what you know, you've got to do it, right? And, you know, you do things differently when you learn something new. You've got to adopt that new skill and go further. You need to think wider when you know wider, you know, you can't just stay in your same pathway. So if opportunities come about, they're not given to the person three doors down. They're not given to the person across the desk in your office. You know, they're given to you and they're given to you because you have a responsibility to do something with them. Oh, not- I love that. And I've got a, I've got a saying for that. Someone said to me once many, many years ago when I've ha- I was having one of my little piggy tanty moments. And they said, who are you not to use the gifts that you've been given? Exactly. And I went, oh, ouch. Yeah. And and, 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 and it helped me move on. Yep, absolutely. So it's a beautiful country song and it, it, and it, the lyric says uh, something along the lines of, um, you know, music is not given to us for us to, you know, basically sit around and just use for our own, our own selves. It's, it's through us and it's meant for others. And I, my compositions, my teaching, the intelligence that was given to me to be a teacher is to be able to teach others to be independent thinkers, to be independent learners. Mm. It's through me, it's to others. Mm. Then through music, music I see as a complete stream, um, you know, stream from the heavens. People will call it what they will. But music is a, is an energy. Music is a spirit. Music is not something we can actually physically, tangibly, you yeah. know, hold on to. It's like air. And if a idea for music comes through you, it's meant to come through you. And if you don't do something with it, it'll go off somewhere else. But the point is, is that it's not meant for you. It's meant to go through you Mm. to somebody else. The songs are never for me. They're always, um, you know, it'll be an experience or an opportunity to write about something that's going to help somebody else. Yeah. So for example, um, you know, there's so many lullabies for little people, little tiny people, but seven-year-olds need lullabies. And so I wrote Good Night to help parents journey through the recount with kids of have I done this and have I done that and have I prepared for bed mm. to become independent mm. humans, to prepare themselves as mm. they're getting older to do those things and to be able to do that through music. It's not meant for me. I don't have children running around my bathroom that I've got to sort out their teeth brushing and stuff. It's meant for others but it will come through you for others Mm. music is like that yeah you mentioned before the fabulous um queen oprah and i wanted to ask you today if her voice was a color i'm gonna be so interested to hear what you say here if her voice was a color what would it be 
I think of Oprah, um, you know, she was in the, the movie The Colour Purple, and I think purple is a very much a feminine kind of colour. It's a strong colour. It's kind of you've got your stuff together with purple. Absolutely. Um, and I think of her with purple, but I also see her in, a, in this fused shade. So purple, but going into like a purple burgundy at the top because she's strong and she's she is a power to be reckoned with. She knows she knows her purpose and she's here to deliver it and help others. And I think she's done that. Um, you know, I'd like to think gold at the top with a bit of a crown on her head. Cause I think she's certainly been an incredible inspiration mm. to many women in her time. So I see her as, you know, the depth of purple, the burgundy fuse at the top with a bit of a, a bit of a gold crown. Thanks for joining me today to strengthen your voice. You want to be heard and you deserve to be heard. We're here to make sure that the woman's voice is heard. I'm Lisa Lachlan Bell and together we are The Woman's Voice. Thanks to our official sponsor, The Voice Draw. For more information on your voice, go to thewomansvoice.com.au.